3. Time in the memory of man when furs form the currency of Kamchatka. Their employment as cash is not unknown at present. Although Russian money is in general circulation, there is a story of a traveler who paid his hotel bill in a country town in Minnesota and received a beaver skin in change. The landlord explained that it was legal tender for a dollar, concealing this novel cash under his coat. The traveler sauntered into a neighboring store. Is it true? He asked carelessly. That a beaver skin is legal tender for a dollar? Yes, sir, said the merchant. Anybody will take it. Will you be so kind? Then, was the traveler's request, as to give me change for a dollar bill? Certainly, answered the merchant, taking the beaver skin and returning for muskrat skins, current at 25 cents each. The sable is the principal fur sought by the merchants in Kamchatka, or trapped by the natives. The animal is caught in a variety of ways, man's ingenuity being taxed to capture him. The yesuk, or poll tax of the natives is payable in sable fur. At the rate of a skin for every four persons, the governor makes a yearly journey through the peninsula to collect the tax, and is supposed to visit all the villages. The merchants go and do likewise for trading purposes. Mr. George S. Cushing, who was long the agent of Mr. Boardman in Kamchatka, estimated the product of sable fur at about 6,000 skins annually. Sometimes it exceeds and sometimes falls below that figure. About a thousand foxes, a few sea otters and silver foxes, and a good many bears, may be added, more for number than value, silver foxes and otters are scarce, while common foxes and bears are of little account, a black fox is worth a great deal of money, but one may find a white crow almost as readily, bears are abundant, but their skins are not articles of export, the beasts are brown or black, and grow to a disagreeable size, bear hunting is an amusement of the country, very pleasant and exciting until the bear turns and becomes the hunter, then there is no fun in it, if he succeeds in his pursuit. A gentleman in Kamchatka gave me a bearskin more than six feet long, and declared that it was not unusually large. I am very glad there was no live bear in it when it came into my possession. There is a story of a man in California who followed the track of a grizzly bear a day and a half. He abandoned it because, as he explained, it was getting a little too fresh. One day, about two years before my visit, a cow suddenly entered Petropavlovsk with a live bear on her back. The bear escaped and hurt, leaving the cow pretty well scratched. After that event she preferred to graze in or near the town, and never brought home another bear. Kamchatka without dogs would be like Hamlet without Hamlet. While crossing the Pacific my companions to voyage made many suggestions touching my first experience in Kamchatka. You won't sleep any the first night in court. The dogs will howl you out of your seven senses. This was the frequent remark of the engineer, corroborated by others. On arriving, we were disappointed to find less than a hundred dogs at Petropavlovsk, as the rest of the canines belonging there were spending vacation in the country. About 1,500 were owned in the town. Very few Kamchadale dogs can bark, but they will howl oftener, longer, and louder than any yaller dog that ever went to a cur pound or became sausage meat. The few in Petropavlovsk made much of their ability and were especially vocal at sunset, near their feeding time. Occasionally during the night they try their throats and keep up a hailing and answering chorus, calculated to draw a great many oaths from profane strangers. In 1865 Colonel Bulkley carried one of these animals to California. The dog lifted up his voice on the waters very often, and received a great deal of rope sending in consequence. 
at San Francisco Mr. Cover took him home, and attempted his domestication, Norcum, for that was the brute's name, created an enmity between Cover and all who lived within hearing distance, and many were the threats of canicide. Cupboard used to rise two or three times every night and argue, with a club, to induce Norcum to be silent. While I was at San Francisco, Mr. Munford, one of the telegraph company's directors, conceived a fondness for the dog, and took him to the Occidental Hotel. On the first day of his hotel life we tied Norcum on the balcony in front of Munford's room, about forty feet from the ground. Scarcely had we gone to dinner when he jumped from the balcony and hung by his chain with his hind feet resting upon a cornice, a howling wilderness is nothing to the noise he made before his rescue, and he gathered and amused a large crowd with his performance, he passed the night in the western basement of the hotel, and spoiled the sleep of a dozen or more persons who lodged near him, when we left San Francisco, Norcum was residing in the baggage room at the Occidental, under special care of the porters, who employed a great deal of muscle in teaching him that silence was a golden virtue, the Kemchadale dogs are of the same breed as those used by the Eskimo, but are said to possess more strength and endurance. The best Asiatic dogs are among the Koryaks, near Penjinsk Gulf, the difference being due to climate and the care taken in breeding them. Dogs are the sole reliance for winter travel in Kemchatka, and every resident considers it his duty to own a team. They are driven in odd numbers, all the way from 3 to 21. The most intelligent and best trained dog acts as a leader the others being harnessed in pairs, no reins are used, the voice of the driver being sufficient to guide them, dogs are fed almost entirely upon fish, they receive their rations daily at sunset, and it is always desirable that each driver should feed his own team, the day before starting on a journey, the dog receives a half ration only, and he is kept on this slender diet as long as the journey lasts, sometimes when hungry they gnaw their reindeer skin harnesses, and sometimes they do it as a pastime. Once formed, the habit is not easy to break. Two kinds of sledges are used, one for travel and the other for transporting freight. The former is light and just large enough for one person with a little baggage. The driver sits with his feet hanging over the side, and clings to a bow that rises in front. In one hand he holds an iron-pointed staff, with which he retards the vehicle in descending hills, or brings it to a halt. A traveling sledge weighs about 25 pounds, but a freight sledge is much heavier. A good team will travel from 40 to 60 miles a day with favorable roads. Sometimes a hundred a day may be accomplished, but very rarely. Once an express traveled from Petropavlovsk to Bolcheretsk, 125 miles, in 23 hours, without change of dogs. Wolves have an inconvenient fondness for dog meat, and occasionally attack travelers. A gentleman told me that a wolf once sprang from the bushes, seized and dragged away one of his dogs, and did not detain the team three minutes. The dogs are cowardly in their dispositions, and will not fight unless they have large odds in their favor. A pack of them will attack and kill a single strange dog, but would not disturb a number equaling their own. Most of the Russian settlers buy their dogs from the natives who breed them. Dogs trained to harness are worth from 10 to 40 rubles dollars each. According to their quality, leaders bring high prices on account of their superior docility and the labor of training them. Epidemics are frequent among dogs and carry off great numbers of them. Hydrophobia is a common occurrence. The Russian inhabitants of Kamchatka are mostly descended from Cossacks and exiles. There is a fair but not a due proportion of half-breeds. 
the natural result of marriage between natives and immigrants. There are about 400 Russians at Petropavlovsk, and the same number at each of two other points. The aboriginal population is about 6,000, including a few hundred dwellers on the Kuril Islands. No exiles have been sent to Kamchatka since 1830. One old man who had been 40 years a colonist was living at Avicha in 1866. He was at liberty to return to Europe, but preferred remaining. In 1771 occurred the first voyage from Kamchatka to a foreign port, and curiously enough, it was performed under the Polish flag. A number of exiles, headed by a Pole named Binyoski, seized a small vessel and put to sea, touching at Japan and Luchu to obtain water and provisions. The party reached the Portuguese colony of Macau in safety. There were no nautical instruments or charts on the ship, and the successful result of the voyage was more accidental than otherwise. Close by the harbor of Petropavlovsk there is a monument to the memory of the ill-fated and intrepid navigator, Loperaus. It bears no inscription, and was evidently built in haste. There is a story that a French ship once arrived in Avicha Bay on a voyage of discovery. Her captain asked the governor if there was anything to commemorate the visit of Loperaus. Certainly, was the reply, I will show it to you in the morning. During the night the monument was hastily constructed of wood and sheet iron and fixed in the position to which the governor led his delighted guest, Captain Clerky, successor to Captain Cook, of Sandwich Island memory, died while his ships were in Avicha Bay, and was buried at Petropavlovsk. A monument that formerly marked his grave has disappeared. Captain Lund and Colonel Bulkley arranged to erect a durable memorial in its place. We prepared an inscription in English and Russian, and for temporary purposes fixed a small tablet on the designated spot. Americans and Russians formed the party that listened to the brief tribute which one of our number paid to the memory of the great navigator. In the autumn of 1854, a combined English and French fleet of six ships suffered a severe repulse from several land batteries and the guns of a Russian frigate in the harbor. Twice beaten off, their commanders determined in assault. They landed a strong force of sailors and marines that attempted to take the town in the rear, but the Kemchadale sharpshooters created a panic and drove the assailants over a steeply sloping cliff 200 feet high. Naturally the natives are proud of their success in this battle, and mention it to every visitor. The English admiral committed suicide early in the attack. The fleet retired to San Francisco, and returned in the following year prepared to capture the town at all hazards. But Petropavlovsk had been abandoned by the Russians, who retired beyond the hills. An American remained in charge of a trading establishment and hoisted his national colors over it. The Allies burned the government property and destroyed the batteries. There were five or six hundred dogs in town when the fleet entered the bay. Their violent howling held the Allies aloof the whole day, under the impression that a garrison should be very large to have so many watchdogs. Chapter V The first project for making discoveries in the ocean east of Kamchatka was formed by Peter the Great, Danish, German and English navigators and savants were sent to the eastern coast of Asia to conduct the explorations in the desired quarter, but very little was accomplished in the lifetime of the great Tsar. His successors carried out his plans. In June, 1741, Vitus Bering, the first navigator of the straits which bear his name, sailed from Avicha Bay, passing south of the islands of the Aleutian chain. Bering steered to the eastward, and at length discovered the American continent. On the 16th of July, says Teller, the naturalist and historian of the expedition, 
we saw a mountain whose height was so great as to be visible at the distance of 16 Dutch miles. The coast of the continent was much broken and indented with bays and harbors. The nearest point of land was named Cape Street Elias, as it was discovered on St. Ella's Day. The high mountain received the name of the saint, and has clung to it ever since. When Bering discovered Russian America he had no thought it would one day be sold to the United States, and there is nothing to show that he ever corresponded with Mr. Seward about it. He sailed a short distance along its coast, visited various islands, and then steered for Kamchatka. The commander was confined to his cabin by illness, and the crew suffered severely from scurvy. At one period, says Steller, only ten persons were capable of duty, and they were too weak to furl the sails so that the ship was left to the mercy of the elements. Not only the sick died, but those who pretended to be healthy fainted and fell down dead when relieved from their posts. In this condition the navigators were drifted upon a rocky island, where their ship went to pieces, but not until all had landed. Many of the crew died soon after going on shore, but the transfer from the ship appeared to diminish the ravages of the scurvy. Commander Bering died on the 8th of December and was buried in the trench where he lay. The island where he perished bears his name, but his grave is unmarked. An iron monument to his memory was recently erected at Petropavlovsk. No human dwellers were found on the island. Foxes were numerous and had no fear of the shipwrecked mariners. We killed many of them, Steller adds, with our hatchets and knives. They annoyed us greatly, and we were unable to keep them from entering our shelters and stealing our clothing and food. The survivors built a small vessel from the wreck, and succeeded in reaching Avicha in the following summer. We were given up for dead, says the historian, and the property we left in Kamchatka had been appropriated by strangers. The reports concerning the abundance of fur-bearing animals on Bering's Island and elsewhere, induced private parties to go in search of profit. Various expeditions were fitted out in ships of clumsy construction and bad sailing qualities. The timbers were fastened with wooden pins and leathern thongs, and the crevices were caulked with moss. Occasionally the cordage was made from reindeer skins, and the sails from the same material. Many ships were erect, but this did not frighten adventurous merchants. Few of these voyages were pushed farther than the Aleutian Islands. The natives were hostile and killed a fair proportion of the Russian explorers. In 1781 a few merchants of Kamchatka arranged a company with a view to developing commerce in Russian America. They equipped several ships, formed a settlement at Kodiak and conducted an extensive and profitable business. Their agents treated the natives with great cruelty, and so bad was their conduct that the Emperor Paul revoked their privileges. A new company was formed and chartered in July, 1779, under the title of the Russian American Company. It succeeded the old concern and absorbed it into its organization. The Russian-American company had its chief office in St. Petersburg, where the directors formed a kind of high court of appeal. It was authorized to explore and place under control of the crown all the territories of northwestern America not belonging to any other government. It was required to deal kindly with the natives, and endeavor to convert them to the religion of the empire. It had the administration of the country and a commercial monopoly through its whole extent. All other merchants were to be excluded, no matter what their nationality. At one time so great was the jealousy of the company's officers that no foreign ship was allowed within 20 miles of the coast. The imperial government required that the chief officer of the company should be commissioned in the service of the crown, and detailed to the control of the American territory. 
His residence was at Sitka, to which the principal post was removed from Kodiak. In the early history of the company there were many encounters with the natives, the severest battle taking place on the present site of Sitka. The natives had a fort there, and were only driven from it after a long and obstinate fight. The first colony that settled at Sitka was driven away, and all traces of the Russian occupation were destroyed. After a few years of conflict, peace was declared, and trade became prosperous. The company occupied Russian America and the Aleutian Islands, and pushed its traffic to the Arctic Ocean. It established posts on the Kuril Islands, in Kamchatka, and along the coast of the Okhotsk Sea. It built churches, employed priests, and was quite successful in converting the natives to Christianity. Having a monopoly of trade and being the lawgiver to the natives, the company had things in pretty much its own way. The governor at Sitka was the autocrat of all the American Russians. There was no appeal from his decision except to the directory at St. Petersburg, which was about as accessible as the moon. The natives were reduced to a condition of slavery, they were compelled to devote the best part of their time to the company's labor, and the accounts were so managed as to keep them always in debt. Alexander Baranoff was the first governor, and continued more than twenty years in power. He managed affairs to his own taste, paying little regard to the wishes of the directory, or even of the emperor. When they conflicted with his own, the Russians in the company's employ were promishlenics, or adventurers, enlisted in Siberia for a term of years. They were soldiers, sailors, hunters, fishermen, or mechanics, according to the needs of the service. Their condition was little better than that of the natives they held in subjection. The territory was divided into districts, each under an officer who reported to the chief at Sitka. The directory was not troubled so long as profits were large, but the government had suspicions that the company's reign was oppressive. An exploring expedition under Admiral Krusenstern visited the North Pacific in 1805. The reports of the Admiral exposed many abuses and led to changes. A more rigid supervision followed, and produced much good. The government insisted upon appointing officers of integrity and humanity to the chief place at Sitka. For many years the company prospered. In 1812 it founded the colony of Ross, on the coast of California and a few years later prepared to dispute the right of the Spanish governor to occupy that region. The natives were everywhere peaceable, and the dividends satisfied the stockholders. The slaughter of the fur-bearing animals was injudiciously conducted, and led to a great decrease of revenue. The last dividend of importance 12% was in 1853. After that year misfortune seemed to follow the company. Its trade was greatly reduced partly by the diminished fur production and partly by the illicit traffic of independent vessels along the coast. Several ships were lost, one in 1865, with a valuable cargo of furs. In 1866 the company's stock, from a nominal value of 150, had fallen to about 80, and the company was even obliged to accept an annual subsidy of 200.000 rubles from the government, so late as February, 1867. It received a loan of 1.000.000 rubles from the Imperial Bank. Probably a few years more would have seen the total extinction of the company, and the reversion of all its rights and expenses to the crown. In 1866 the fleet of the Russian-American company comprised two sea steamers, six ships, two brigs, one schooner, and several smaller craft for coasting and inland service. During the Crimean War the company's property was made neutral on condition of its taking no part in hostilities. 
Two of its ships were captured and burned for an alleged violation of neutrality. The company leased a portion of its territory to the Hudson Bay Company, and allowed it to establish hunting and trading posts. A strip of land bordering the ocean was thus in English hands, and gave access to a wide region beyond the coast mountains, not content with what was leased. The Hudson Bay Company deliberately seized a locality on the Yukon River when it had no right. It built Fort Yukon and secured much of the interior trade of Russian America. When our Secretary of State purchased the Emperor's title to the western coast of America, there were various opinions respecting the sagacity of the transaction. No one could say what was the intrinsic value of the country, either actual or prospective. The company never gave much attention to scientific matters. The Russian government had made some explorations to ascertain the character and extent of the rivers, mountains, plains, and swamps that form the country. In 1841 Lieutenant Zagoyskin commenced an examination of the country bordering the rivers, and continued it for two years. He traced the course of the Kuskopvam and the lower portions of the Yukon, or Vikpak. His observations were chiefly confined to the rivers and the country immediately bordering them. He made no discoveries of agricultural or mineral wealth. Fish and deer meat, with berries, formed the food of the natives, while furs were their only articles of trade. Russian America is of great extent, superficially, it is agreeably diversified with mountains, hills, rolling country, and tableland, with a liberal amount of caravel or undulating swamp. In the northern portion there is timber scattered along the rivers and on the mountain slopes, but the trees and their quantity are alike small. In the southern parts there are forests of large trees, that will be valuable when Oregon and Washington are exhausted. Along the coast there are many bays and harbors easy of access and well sheltered. Sitka has a magnificent harbor, never frozen or obstructed with ice. Gold is known to exist in several localities. A few placer mines have been opened on the Stiking River, but no one knows the extent of the auriferous beds. In the absence of all prospecting data, I do not believe gold mining will ever be found profitable in Russian America. The winters are long and cold, and the snows are deep. The working season is very short and in many localities on the mainland ground ice is permanent at slight depths. Veins of copper have been found near the Yukon, but so far none that would pay for developing. Building stone is abundant, and so is ice. Neither is of much value in commerce. The fur trade was the chief source of the company's revenue. The principal fur-bearing animals are the otter, seal, beaver, marten, mink, fox, and a few others. There is a little trade in walrus teeth, mammoth tusks whalebone, and oil. The rivers abound in fish, of which large quantities are annually salted and sent to the Pacific markets. The fisheries along the coast are valuable and of the same character as those on the banks of Newfoundland. Agriculture is limited to a few garden vegetables. There are no fruit trees, and no attempts have thus far been made to introduce them. The number of native inhabitants is unknown, as no census has ever been taken. I have heard it estimated all the way from 20 to 60,000. The island and sea coast inhabitants are of the Eskimo type, while those of the interior are allied to the North American Indians. The explorers for the Western Union Telegraph Company found them friendly, but not inclined to labor. Some of the natives left their hunting at its busiest season to assist an exploring party in distress. The change of rulers will prove a misfortune to the aboriginal. Very wisely the Russian-American company prohibited intoxicating liquors in all dealings with the natives. The contraband stuff could only be obtained from independent trading ships, chiefly American, 
with the opening of the country to our commerce. Whiskey has been abundant and accessible to everybody. The native population will rapidly diminish, and its decrease will be accompanied by a falling off in the fur product. Our government should rigidly continue the prohibitory law as enforced by the Russian officials. The sale of his American property was an excellent transaction on the part of the emperor. The country brought no revenue worth the name, and threatened to be an expensive ornament in coming years. It required a sea voyage to reach it, and was upon a continent which Russia does not aspire to control. It had no strategic importance in the Muscovite policy, and was better out of the empire than in it. The purchase by ourselves may or may not prove a financial success. Thus far its developments have not been promising. When the country has been thoroughly examined, it is possible we may find stores of now unknown wealth. Politically the acquisition is more important. The possession of a large part of the Pacific coast, indented with many bays and harbors, is a matter of moment in view of our national ambition. The American eagle can scream louder since its cage has been enlarged, and if any man attempts to haul down that noble bird, scoop him from the spot. Chapter VI. Colonel Bulkley determined to sail on the 6th of August for an Adair Bay, and ordered the very act to proceed to the Amor by way of Digiga. Early in the morning the corvette changed her moorings and shook a reef from her telescopic smokestack, and at nine o'clock I bade adieu to the right and went on board the Variag, to which I was welcomed by Capt. Lund, according to the Russian custom, and quartered in the room specially designed for the use of the Admiral. The ladies were on the nearest point of the beach, and just before our departure the Captain and most of his officers paid them a farewell visit, seizing the tow line of the Danzig which we were to take to sea. We steamed from the harbor into the Pacific, followed by the cheers of all on board the right and the waving of ladies' handkerchiefs still lost in the distance. We desired to pass the fourth, or Amphitrite, channel of the Kuril Islands. The weather was so thick that we could not see a ship's length in any direction, and all night men stood with axes ready to cut the Danzig's tow line in case any sudden danger should appear. The fog lifted just as we neared the channel and we had a clear view on all sides. We cast off the Danzig when fairly out of the Pacific. During the two days the Variag had her in tow we maintained communication by means of a log line and a junk bottle carefully sealed. Casting our bottle on the waters, we allowed it to drift alongside the Danzig, where it could be fished up and opened. Answers were returned in the same mail pouch. One response was in liquid form, and savored of gin cocktail, fabricated by the American captain. An hour after dropping the Danzig we stopped our engines and prepared to run under sail. The whole crew was called on deck to hoist out the screw. A mass of copper weighing 25,000 pounds, and set in a frame raised or lowered like a window sash. With strong ropes and the power of 300 men, the frame and its contents were lifted out of water, and the very act became a sailing ship. The Russian government is more economical than our own in running ships of war, whenever possible. Sails are used instead of steam. A few years ago a Russian admiral was transferred from active to retired service because he burned too much coal. The Variag was 2100 tons burden, and carried 17 guns, with a crew of 306 men. She was of the fleet that visited New York in 1863, and her officers recounted many pleasant reminiscences of their stay in the United States. While wintering in Japanese waters she was assigned to assist the telegraph enterprise, and reported as soon as possible at Petropavlovsk, but the only service demanded was to proceed to the mouth of the Amor by way of Gijiga and Ohotsk. The officers of the Variag were, 
a captain, a commander, four lieutenants, six sub-lieutenants, an officer of marines with a cadet, a lieutenant of naval artillery, two sailing masters, two engineers, a surgeon, a paymaster, and a priest. As near as I could ascertain, their pay, including allowances, was about three-fourths that of American officers of similar grades. They received three times as much at sea as when awaiting orders, and this fact led them to seek constant service. In the wardroom they read, wrote, talked, smoked, and could play any games of amusement except cards. Card playing is strictly forbidden by the Russian naval regulations. The sailors on the corvette were robust and powerful fellows, with appetites to frighten a hotel keeper. Russian sailors from the interior of the empire are very liable to scurvy. Those from Finland are the best for long voyages. Captain Lund once told me the experience of a Russian expedition of five ships upon a long cruise. One ship was manned by Finlanders, and the others carried sailors from the interior. The Finlanders were not attacked with scurvy, but the rest suffered severely. All the Russians, said the captain, make good sailors, but those from the maritime provinces are the best seamen. Early in the voyage it was interesting to see the men at dinner. Their table utensils were wooden spoons and tubs, at the rate of ten spoons and one tub to every ten men. A piece of canvas upon the deck received the tub, which generally contained soup, with their hats off. The men dined leisurely and amicably. Soup and bread were the staple articles of food. Cabbage soup ski is the national diet of Russia, from the peasant up to the autocrat. Several times on the voyage we had soup on the captain's table from the supply prepared for the crew and I can testify to its excellence. The food of the sailors was carefully inspected before being served. When the soup was ready, the cook took a bowl of it, with a slice of bread and a clean spoon, and delivered the whole to the bosun. From the bosun it went to the officer of the deck, and from him to the chief officer, who delivered it to the captain. The captain carefully examined and tasted the soup, if an objectionable. The bowl was returned to the galley and the dinner served at once. A sailor's ration in the Russian Navy is more than sufficient for an ordinary appetite and digestion. The grog ration is allowed, and the bosun's call to liquid refreshment is longer and shriller than for any other duty. At the grog tub the sailor stands with uncovered head while performing the ceremonial abhort of good Templars. As of old in our Navy, grog is stopped as a punishment. The drink ration can be entirely commuted and the food ration one half, but not more. Many sailors on the very ag practiced total abstinence at sea, and as the grog had been purchased in Japan at very high cost, the commutation money was considerable. Commutation is regulated according to the price of the articles where the ship was last supplied. I was told that the sailors' pay, including ordinary allowances, is about a hundred rubles a year. The sum is not munificent, but probably the Muscovite mariner is no more economical than the American one. In his liberty on shore he will get as drunk as the oft quote.